The poet Rainer Maria Rilke once wrote, Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Like locked rooms and like books that are now written in a very foreign tongue, do not now seek the answers, which cannot be given to you because you would not be able to live with them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps then you will gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. This quote is a favorite among progressive Christians. It's often quoted by Marcus Borg and scholars who love to question everything, to question the traditional understanding of the Bible and the doctrines of Christianity. Rilke's words invite us to lean into the mystery and complexity of life, into the liminal space between the questions and the answers, which may never come. Try to love the questions. Try to live the questions he beckons us. And as we hear his words, we breathe easy because it is comforting to know it's okay to doubt. It is okay to be uncertain. It is okay to have only questions right now. It is okay not to have all the answers because some answers are unlivable. I have a lot of questions right now, and most of my questions are about the future. I have questions about the future of the church and the future of Christianity, the future of America, the future of human life on our planet. More immediately, I have questions about what will happen when 80% of the population has been vaccinated. Will we all try to go back to normal, or will we discover that nothing will ever be the same again, or both? What will it feel like to be together again after not being together in person for over a year? Will it feel like a reunion or will it feel bittersweet? Will our joy of seeing each other be mixed with tears for all that we've lost? Will we be able to see the new thing God has done in our absence and welcome the new community God has gathered? Or will we grieve in nostalgia for what once was and has now disappeared? I have so many questions about the future, and I'm sure you do too. But what if the questions that we are loving and living are bad questions? What happens when we're living in bad questions? I know you've heard it said, there are no bad questions, only bad answers, and the only bad question is one that is never asked, but I'm not so sure anymore. As followers of Jesus, we are invited to question everything. So I'm questioning the idea that there are no bad questions. Our theme for this Lenten season has been, can these bones live? Based on a question God asked Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones. And each Sunday during this Lenten season, we've had a sermon based on another question. Can this desert flourish? Can this dirt breathe? Can this ground forgive? Can this dust testify? And today's question can this mud see? Yet every week I've noticed the preachers, whether it was Helms or Tara or Mia or myself, have questioned the nature of the question itself as if it might have been the wrong question in the first place. Questioning the question is a very Jesus-like thing to do, but it has me asking myself, are there bad questions? And if so, what happens 
when we try to love or live in bad questions? Can we question those questions? When the disciples saw a man blind from birth, they asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This is an example of a bad question, a question that must be questioned. Leave it to the disciples to be out of the picture for two whole chapters in the Gospel of John while Jesus is being hunted by the religious authorities only to show up out of nowhere and ask Jesus a ridiculous question. Where have the disciples been hiding? And why did they ask this strange question? All questions come from somewhere, originate from underlying assumptions. Questions are like the tip of the iceberg sticking out of the sea and the ideas and assumptions behind the questions are like a massive glacier underneath the water. The disciples' question was based on wild presumptions. First, they presumed that blindness was the consequence of sin. Second, they presumed the man's blindness was the consequence either of his sins or his parents. The prophets had already rebuked the notion that illness or ability were determined by our ancestors' sins. Moreover, the idea that someone could sin before being born or be cursed with sin as they come out of the womb and into the world was an unprecedented idea in the first century. How can a person sin before they can breathe? How can a person cause their own blindness at birth? What sort of in utero culpability did the disciples have in mind here? It is obvious the disciples were living inside of a bad question, a bad question about sin. According to the disciples, illness and sin could be explained in one of three ways. It was either the result of personal responsibility, inherited genetics, or family upbringing. They believed the responsibility for this man's blindness was either on him or his parents. And I know we look at the disciples and we think they must have been crazy to think that way. But in many ways, their views reflect the way we think today, especially how we think about the poor in our own society. Oh, we say poverty can't possibly be the result of policies implemented by politicians who are almost always bought and owned by multinational corporations lobbying for what is in their own economic interest. No, no, no. It must be the result of laziness or the lack of responsibility, bad genes or an unstable family life that a poor person had. It must be their fault When it comes to considering the poor, we, like the disciples, always seem to focus on the individual or their family and blame the victim or their relatives instead of looking at the causes of poverty. Why? Why do we do that? So that we can avoid taking responsibility for the poor in our communities. So that we can avoid the responsibility of having to change. The priest, Dom Helder Camaro, once Famously said, when I give food to the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why they are poor, they call me a communist. When the neighbors of the man who was healed saw him, they said, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? The man was not just blind, he was poor. Sickness, sin, and poverty 
were woven together in the first century mind, just as they are today. If you were poor, it was because you were sick or disabled. And if you were sick and disabled, it was because you were a sinner. Therefore, all poor people must be sinners. That is the way they thought. But look how Jesus responded to the disciples' questions and their presumptions that this man's poverty must have been the result of the fact that he lacked responsibility or had bad genes or came from a bad home. He said, no way, untrue, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Neither can be blamed. Neither is the problem. If there is a reason and I'm not sure there is, that this man was born blind, it was to show you all something. It was to open your eyes, not just his, and to reveal to you the glory of God. It was to reveal your own blindness, to demonstrate to you that your view of sin is horribly mistaken, to show you that you are asking the wrong questions, bad questions, to disclose to you that all people are worthy of love and inclusion, that the last are first and the least are greatest, and that the people who do not see will see and those who do see will become blind. This week, one of our members asked me to provide a definition of sin, and I gave my standard response, which comes from theologian Alvin Plantinga, sin is the culpable disruption of God's shalom. The culpable disruption of God's peace. What I failed to say is that sin has a history and its definition evolves over time. In the gospels, as it is today, sin was a socially determined concept. A sinner was the term for someone who was considered outside the conventional norms of society. Many quote Paul today who said all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but that idea of sin was a later development. It was not the view in the first century world, nor was it the way that Jesus used the term in the Gospels. In Jesus' day, a sinner could be a lot of different people. Anyone who was not an Israelite, first of all, was a sinner. All Gentiles were considered sinners. But so also was anyone who was unclean, according to the purity codes. They were also sinners. And anyone with an illness or disability was a sinner. And guess what? Anyone who didn't tithe to the temple also was a sinner. And now for a brief word from our chair of stewardship. Just kidding. Sinner was a term that was used to lump together anybody and everybody who did not conform to the social, religious, and political norms of the time. In his book, Sinners, Jesus and His Earliest Followers, Gary Carey reminds us that the word sinner was not a generic term for all people in first century Judea. They had no original sin idea, but a specific term used for people who would not or could not, for whatever reason, conform to the social expectations of their particular cultural environment. Sinner meant someone engaged in what was considered socially deviant behaviors or who had an irregular condition. Yet we're told over and over again in the Gospels that Jesus surrounded himself on all sides with sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, and sinners is the common refrain. We like to lump these groups together, but they were three different categories of people, prostitutes, tax collectors, and people outside the social, religious, and political conventions. 
These are the people who Jesus explicitly came to save. He said, I came not to save the righteous, but the sinners, to welcome, to touch, to embrace, to include, and to liberate those who are on the outside of the social order. Sinner is such a broad term that in this story, Jesus is called a sinner by the Pharisees. Why? Because he operated outside of the social conventions. He was not an official priest. He was not a member of the chief priests or scribes or an official rabbi. He challenged the social and political establishment, which is why they constantly kept asking, whose authority do you do this by? He engaged in what the authorities considered deviant behavior. He did not conform to social expectations or the norms of first century society. One case in point is the way that Jesus mixed his own spit with the soil to make mud in this story and then spread that on a man's eyes as an act of healing. Saliva, like any bodily fluid, was considered unclean according to Levitical law in Leviticus 15. Therefore, Jesus' activity was not only unsanctioned by the authorities, but a blatant violation of the law that would have made him an unclean sinner. According to the Pharisees, Jesus was a sinner, a sinner who was regularly sinning with other sinners, which is why they simply could not accept the healing of the blind man. So they did what authorities do when they cannot accept challenges to unjust laws and social norms that keep them in power. They launched an investigation. Like the birther movement that questioned Obama's citizenship, the Pharisees disputed the fact that the man was actually born blind. Maybe he became blind later, but he couldn't have possibly been born blind. And they even summoned his parents to testify. Yet even the testimony of his parents didn't stop the Pharisees' investigation. They were not asking good questions. They were not looking for answers. They were engaged in an interrogation. This was not a trial. The beggar who was healed had already been condemned, along with Jesus, his healer. This was no honest inquiry. This was an inquisition. Listen to the Pharisees' questions. How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? What do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Give glory to God. Don't you know that this man is a sinner? What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? You were born entirely in sins, and you're trying to teach us? Surely we are not blind, are we? Just like the disciples, the Pharisees were living inside bad questions. Bad questions about sin, bad questions that considered entire groups of people unembraceable, unredeemable, unsalvageable, impossible to heal, and unworthy of credibility or trust, let alone love. Bad questions are dangerous sometimes. Bad questions can become violent actions. Why did the Pharisees feel that they needed to take such dramatic steps to interrogate the man who was healed? Because... Well, because if he had truly been healed, then he was no longer a sinner, and they, he would have to be included in their community. If he had truly been healed, then that means that Jesus is not a sinner either, but a legitimate prophet whose mission, message, and critique of the religious and political establishment would have had to have been taken more seriously. 
Michael de Chertow once wrote that the goal of an inquisition or torture is not to produce the truth, but to produce the acceptance of state discourse through forced confession. The difference between a good question and a bad question is that a good question is a question that seeks the truth. The capital T truth, what we would call reality, history, actuality. Bad questions, on the other hand, are questions that seek to confirm the little truth we've already decided for ourselves, the limited truth we've grown accustomed to, the made-up truth that establishes our power and righteousness, the fake truth that keeps things the way they are and maintains the status quo, the toxic truth that keeps the rich rich and the poor poor, the violent truth that blames all the problems on society on the victims of history for not having enough discipline or personal responsibility or not coming from a family that was good enough. Bad questions lead to bad answers and bad actions, which is why Jesus invites us to question the questions, to question the bad questions, to question the questions that are asked in bad faith, to question the idea of who is considered a sinner in our society, to question those who blame the victim or their families, to question those who call for more personal responsibility without naming or addressing the systemic causes of inequality or taking responsibility for a system that excludes people from the economic benefits of our community and our society. Question those questions. Jesus even invites us to question our bad questions about our faith, the bad questions of our religion, especially when our ideas about sin have become a justification for violence. This past week, a white man who is the son of a youth pastor at a Southern Baptist church in Georgia, whose evangelical testimony went viral a few years ago, who loved the Bible and described his life as Pizza, guns, drums, music, family, and God went on a horrific, racist, and misogynistic killing spree of Asian Americans and others who were at massage parlors in and around Atlanta. And then, as is always the case when there is a mass shooting by a white domestic terrorist, we want to know who's to blame. And we're definitely not going to do the hard work of looking in the mirror at ourselves. And so what do we do? We ask bad questions. Was he just fed up at the end of his rope? Was he just having a bad day? Was he just trying to eliminate temptation? Was he a lone wolf? Was it his sex addiction? Was it mental health? Was it racially motivated? Was it a hate crime? Some of these questions are bad because the answers are obvious. And others are bad because their answers are pointless and they are based on the wrong presumptions. A good question might be, how did our faith go so wrong that we can no longer see the intersecting truths about sex, gender, race, ethnicity, guns, and violence. How did we come to be so blind? One of the former pastors 
of Pullen Memorial Church in Raleigh, Mahan Seiler, a friend of mine, recently described to me his experience of attending a racial equity training. When he arrived on the first day, they asked him to answer a question. Tell me about the wound on your back. Tell me about the wound on your back. Now that is a great question. He later told me, Ben, the wound on my back is my whiteness. It's a hidden wound. I can't see it on my own. I need help from other people to see it, he said. And I need mirrors in order to see it for myself. We all need mirrors. We all need mirrors to see our hidden wounds. The wounds we all have from living inside a bad question of bad faith. Of living inside an imperialist, capitalist, white supremacist, evangelical, patriarchal nightmare. We all need mirrors to see ourselves more clearly. We need mirrors to see the hidden wounds on our backs. Who are your mirrors? The most powerful mirrors, the most truthful and accurate mirrors are the ones that come from the outside, from the people on the margins, from the poor. The beggar in this story became a mirror for the disciples and the Pharisees the disciples debated, the Pharisees interrogated, but Jesus acted to heal the beggar with mud so that his life might be changed, so he wouldn't have to keep on begging to survive, so he might be included. But he also sent the man through the pool of Siloam and out into the world as a testimony, a testimony to those who had oppressed and excluded him, a testimony to those who keep people in poverty, to the system itself. Because of Jesus, his life, his sight, his dignity would stand as a testimony against a religious community and a cruel, harsh world that could simply not find any way to see him and embrace him for who he really was. Greg Carey writes, if contemporary Christians took seriously the possibility that those outside the boundaries of the church might hold the promise of renewal. If we ceased regarding ourselves as the source of salvation and the secular world as a potential threat, and if we emulated Jesus' example in accepting the faith and the courage of those who live beyond the conventional standards of purity, well, he says, I can barely imagine how different things would look. Maybe we'd be able to see one another. Maybe we'd be able to see ourselves more truly. When Jesus mixed his spit with the soil, he was mimicking God, engaging in an act of creation, new creation. It wasn't just the beggar's sight that Jesus was trying to restore, but society itself. It was the disciples and the Pharisees as well. It was Ours, he was trying to restore. Yet each and every day, we still ask, 
Surely we are not blind, are we? No, we really aren't blind. We just think we can see everything by ourselves. But we are mud. We are muck. We are mortal human beings made from the dirt. And we will never be able to see truly and fully until we can learn to look at ourselves through each other's eyes. And more importantly, through the eyes of the poor. So today, as we face the twilight of this Lenten season, let us ask ourselves, what are the bad questions we are living inside of? What are the questions that we need to question? What are the hidden wounds we have that we need to see? And who will be our mirrors? Amen.